but in one case i was looking at a, a site that was blown up by the bad guys and they had blown up the local police force because it was a place they used to do their shift changes so they would bring a bunch of police in and do a briefing and then send the new guys out on these checkpoints well the bad guys knew where they did their shift change meeting and and blew them up killed probably 20 or 30 people never mind the civilians that were hanging around so i th i was a little curious with this crew that i was with and we went down there to look at it and and in fairness the police were still kind of freaked out welcome to innovation and leadership where i interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers elite special operations soldiers startup ceos who sold their companies for billions of dollars pro athletes hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as i can the whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got my friend Tom Bigley. Tom, thanks for making time. Yeah, no problem. How are you? Good. So you have, you have a diverse background, my friend. Let's talk about a couple of things that you've done. So successful investor, successful entrepreneur, successful botanist, in my, in my opinion, because yeah. I've walked yeah, around, your 25, yes, I've walked around your 25 acres and you can tell me every plant. Maybe something more notable for folks is that after being an army ranger, you went into the special mission unit for the army and reached the top of the top levels for the world's number one counterterrorism force. I think for today, I think one of the first things I want to start with is you look at selection for the Army Special Mission Unit. And, you know, people like the Navy SEALs, they get a lot of airtime of 80% of their guys don't make it. You know, people that try out for the Navy SEALs. And what maybe doesn't get as quite, quite as much in airtime is for you guys and how selection there, 95% of the people who are physically qualified don't, don't make it. Can you mm -hmm. talk about why you think you made it when so many other folks didn't? Yeah, but let me let me talk about a couple of general general things first. Sure. When, when we talk about first of all, I don't even know the statistics because they're they're kind of sealed, not necessarily like a an army secret, but the real statistics of what happens at selection are are limited to very few people. However, you're correct. Generally speaking, it has a very high attrition rate. But when you talk about the attrition rate, you really have to look at the selection of getting to selection as a bigger picture thing that a lot of people don't even qualify to go there. So based on the physical fitness test prior and so forth. In the big scheme of things in the big army, you know, a very small percentage of people actually get to apply and then get accepted and then a very small percentage of people pass. And I think that keeping with the standards that they have set, and I haven't been down there in a while, but my, my assumptions are based on talking to different people that the standards haven't changed. So I think that's the critical piece. It's not only a hard course to pass, it's really a hard course to get get to. Yeah, no so, kidding. I think the Navy SEALs, too, have a little different thing. And and I know a lot of Navy SEALs at all different levels. The difference is, in, in my this is my opinion, too. So the Navy SEALs to the Navy are kind of like uh, a recruiting element. And their strategic value in the big picture of things, it's really not that big of a deal. But to the Navy, it's a big deal because they're very popular and so forth. But the Navy is ships and boats and giant guns and all these things. The Army is a ground-fighting tactical force, whether it's mechanized or unmechanized. So it really has a position, as do the Marines, although they're kind of a subdivision of the Navy, 
So they, the recon guys that are now in special operations have a purpose versus, you know, a bunch of guys that are scuba divers, basically, that have all this fancy stuff. And how did I, how did I, how did I completely know this is where things were going to start off as soon as I said the word Navy SEAL? I love it. Every time. I love the Navy SEALs. A lot of them are good friends of mine. I know. And and they would argue some of these points, but. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, They're. They're all bosun's mates. And if you want to look up what (laughs) that means, if you want to look up what a bosun's mate is, they're not Ranger Army tactical fighters, which is what I I arguably 80 percent of the unit guys are. So if you want to make that comparison and I could argue them, if you could next time we talk, get one on the line. I I have a couple of suggestions if you want one and we'll argue with you on online. But and, and it's not to put them down. They do a great job. But, you know. There is a big difference, and they know it, whether they'll admit it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Yeah. No, I've had some SEALs on the show before. We had Chris Fussell, who is a dev guru guy, and other folks, and and obviously spending a, a bunch of time training, you know, doing leadership training for those guys. They they have some similar opinions that you'd probably like to refute, but <laughs> in reverse. Sure, sure. But, but, yeah, thinking about this. So, you know, Rangers, you're one of the very first guys to ever jump into Grenada, you know, all this kind of stuff. No, I, let me correct you. I was yeah. the first guy. I was the first guy to jump into Rio Hato in the Panama invasion. Oh, Panama. I'm sorry. That was, that was not Grenada. Sorry. Yeah, but I did. I was on the first aircraft and I jumped first on aircraft one in Rio Hato for the for the Panama invasion. For the second and third Ranger Battalion. So, so that, you know what? Let's just, just so do that part. Let's just do that part over. So the Rangers, you're the first guy out of the first airplane jumping into Panama. What year was that? 1989, December. Okay. And that was going for Noriega, right? Yeah, that was the to capture Noriega, and which was, is what the unit did, actually. But we, we invaded. The Rangers hit two airfields initially. And correct me if I'm wrong. Was there an American hostage in a jail there at the same time that you guys were getting out? Is that one? Yeah, there was. Kurt Muse was a captive guy in the uh, try to think of the name of the prison but yeah he was he was he was rescued in the prison so going from that type of experience and and heading to selection for the special mission unit what do you think you did differently why did you make it when so many others don't well i think it has a lot to do with a lot of phases of upbringing in going from what i did i owned a roofing company at 20 years old i had probably 20 employees and I do think those things matter. Now, when I came into the Army at 23 years old, I was a little bit older than the average Ranger. But still, I got stuck at the bottom, and I had to work my way up to you know, progress as a team leader and a squad leader and so forth. And they were very focused, the Rangers in Fort Lewis. And that's really all I'm going to speak to, because I don't know what they were doing in other places. But they were very individual. They were they were orientated individually. They wanted to make sure that each person had very good individual skills first, and then they would throw you into you know combined exercises or schools like ranger school or so forth. But the the teaching was very individualized. They wanted to make sure you could independently navigate, you could independently run, do all kinds of things as an individual, which is really what the special mission unit tests specifically. So the high attrition rate of other people, you have a very high success rate coming out of places like 1st and 2nd Ranger Battalion, even over special forces, because of how they operated. 
we did operate as a team, but on the individual tasks, they forced you to know these things by yourself and on your own. And they tested you individually that way. So you couldn't basically cheat because your buddy could help you and so forth. And then when you did things collectively, that's what makes the success of the collective units. So the, the unit, the Delta guys have a really solid individual training s- sequence and are tested on it consistently. But then when they come together, they can do collective tasks much better. And and it worked in both places. And I think the training that I got there, plus the fact that I was a very, what it was on the term, I was, I was very, I wanted to have in my civilian life and in my military life, the outcome was important. So I was focused as a civilian on success in building a building or doing a contract correctly and to the best ability, even if it costs money, I wanted to make sure that the that I presented 100% of the product. And that transpired in the Ranger Battalion, they kept that going. And it was kind of a chance. I mean, there's other units in the Army that don't do that at all. They They do more collective things. They do have some very minor, like basic training is kind of a group think thing and so forth. And you get out of that mindset into an individual focus. And that's that's critical. And that helped me years later. I was able to undercut people by doing analysis of a production, construction production case and sit back and do it myself and go through all the numbers and then be able to present a better solution that was acceptable to the government or the client or whoever. So I think I passed selection based on the fact that I always did things individually. I'll give you just a a story example of that. I used to never drink water when I was doing long movements or out in the field, whether it was winter, summer. I would always try to limit and basically dehydrate myself right to the point of I could still perform at 100%, but I was at the least amount of water that I could operate on. And people would look at me and I would do this myself. I There was nobody instructed me to do this. And the point was, and I said to them, I said, I need to know how far I can go without any water. Because if I get in a situation, I'll know exactly what I, what's occurring. And I'll understand the physiology of it. I'll understand exactly how it's affecting me. On the flip side of that, people would say, oh, no, you have to drink water. The Army's saying it's drink water, drink water. Well, sure, I had water available to me. But I would limit it. And I did this over and over and over again. So in situations in in long movement situations in combat operations, I I knew exactly how well I could operate with a very limited resource. Water is a critical resource. And later on, as you talked about my botany experience, I was doing some work for the the government at Fort Lewis and surveying all their forests because I have that wonderful skill of being able to figure out what all these different plants are. And I had a special forces guy with me and we were doing probably 10 to 15 click movements a day on these surveys and just marking off areas. And he went along with me and I was doing the same thing. It was kind of automatic. I wasn't drinking any water. And he's like, what's wrong with you? I go, well, it's kind of I test myself just to see if I start getting, if I start feeling strange and I'll drink some water, but I don't do that unless And I go, and I know exactly how I can do this all day. And he thought I was out of my mind. And in the sense of I was, I think I was still in the reserves at that point, but I was not an active army guy, but he's like, that's just nuts. But the fact is, that's an example of how people can operate at really high levels because they know themselves very well. It's kind of a body awareness thing. Okay, so you go in 2nd Battalion, and and how far is Fort Lewis 
from like Seattle or Tacoma? How far is that drive? You know, depending on traffic, but it's about 45 minutes. Okay. If that. Yeah. Uh, and what, what year did you go? Did you go to rip first or, or? Yeah. We used to do rip at Fort Lewis at the time. I don't think they do that anymore. I think it's all collective down at Fort Benning, but yeah, they had rip. So you'd show up at Fort Lewis. They do your basic in processing of soldiers collective thing. And then you get stuck in rip. And that was a very interesting experience. So what year did you go into uh, rip ranger indoctrination program? Well, I joined the army and it was, I was delayed, but I joined the army basically in 83. I actually deployed or I left for the army on the 27th of December. So basically right after Christmas on the 83. So basically 84, I went through basic training, advanced infantry training and airborne school at Fort Benning. And then I got shipped to Washington State as a ranger indoctrination candidate. So you in process at Fort Lewis, which is, I think we said it's about 45 minutes south of seattle and it's joint base lewis mccord now but at the time fort lewis and we went into in process what was interesting is we had probably 10 or 15 guys that were in processing that were scheduled to go to rip but you still have to do the basic finance things and it was like a week worth of just in processing somehow they screwed up my they're supposed to stamp your packet for finance so my packet didn't get stamped so the other 15 guys take off and the lady says, oh, we're just going to wait till after lunch. We'll get your packet stamped. Because I had gone through this section, and you can go over there. So I get to go over there all by myself. Perfect, right? So these guys show up, and this is like torture. As soon as you show up there, you're low crawling around. I'm in my dress greens, and I meet this guy named Shockley, who's the E7 running the part of the camp. And he's just, you know, he's a very rude, abrasive guy. Takes my info and then tells me to low crawl across the street to pick up my stuff because I'm late. So I ruined my uniform. That was good. And that was my intro into RIP. Now, that was 30 days of pretty intense training, uh, you know, kind of nonstop. And out of the, I think we started out with about 100 candidates. Some of those were recycles. A, a small majority or a small percentage of those people recycles. We graduated 15 people, and I think half of those were recycles. So it was, a, it was an interesting 30 days. And surviving that, I felt very accomplished. Well, and then we showed up at, and then I went to A Company in Second Range Battalion. You know, there's obviously a lot more Rangers than there are. There are a lot more Rangers than there are members of the Special Mission Unit. What do you think you did different as a Ranger to even get invited to to selection? Well, they don't really invite you. There was probably five or six guys from my platoon that were in the unit when I was in my platoon. So. Some of them were my former squad leaders and so forth. So basically, it's kind of a word of mouth thing. It's like, why aren't you going to selection? And you should come down and, and do that. And I'll be honest with you, I did initially, and I failed the swim test. And I went through the, because I swim like a rock, as, as they figured that out pretty quickly. And they said, well, you need to learn how to swim. So I did learn how to swim, and I went back and passed the swim test. But I could have been a statistic like all the, all the others. So I think in reference to, now granted, the, the unit is open to all MOSs across the arm. Matter of fact, when I was in the operator's training course, a guy was in there that was a crane operator, whatever. I don't even know what MOS that is, but he was a crane operator and he passed and you know so on. And 
but in general, it's not, it's not those guys. Those guys don't usually make it. And I don't know what the percentage is, but I know that most of the unit is special forces people, but a lot of them are converted Rangers. So like I had the opportunity to go to special forces training once I was at the unit, but I declined. So I, I didn't do it. I'm interested in this idea of self-conditioning, knowing your own limits, you know, achieving high levels of personal mastery so you can pull your weight when you're out there with your team. Can you talk about just any kind of principles of that? I mean, you were obviously doing the self-imposed thing with the water. Any other ideas? Yeah, that, that... that's just one example. The other things that we used to do, and, and this was myself and a lot of other people, we knew we had to, as a ranger, for example, you knew you had to walk long ways with a lot of stuff. And that's just the way it is. You've got to figure out how to do that without killing yourself. And that's kind of, they don't really tell you. They just say, here's, you know, 60, 70 pounds of stuff. Here's your, your crappy army equipment that doesn't fit right. And through personal trials and then input from guys that have been around, obviously, from other experienced people, you've got to figure out how to do that. And, you know, you could carry a lot more weight on your hips than you can carry on your shoulders. And if you set your gear up right, you can transfer the weight to your hips versus your shoulders, and it takes the weight off your, your lower back and so forth. So there's a lot of little things that you can do to improve that. The quality of the equipment helps. So if you can, you know, retrofit your equipment sometimes with better things, that works. What's the advantage to the unit versus the regular army or the rangers is they have access to everything. So you can pretty much order whatever you want and you'll get it if it's going to improve your mission capability within reason, like not yeah. airplanes and stuff. But, well, you know. Well, I want to talk about this. So I, I'd be interested to, to hear about lessons learned of being the first guy out of the first plane in Panama. You know, we got an American hostage to go recover and all these things versus and you know obviously i know there's stuff you can't talk about but years later you're at the special mission unit and everything gets crazy you know the black hawk down incident and you show up right afterwards to help out can you talk about lessons that you learned on each of those well i can well i can talk about i've been to places that aren't public knowledge and they're classified where i was working but the bottom line is they weren't friendly countries and things happen sometimes when you're operating in, in, you know, like the third world situation. And in one case, and what helped me, and I'll tell you how this helped me later on. But in one case, I was looking at a, a site that was blown up by the bad guys and they had blown up the local police force because it was a place they used to do their shift changes. So they would bring a bunch of police in and do a briefing and then send the new guys out on these checkpoints. Well, the bad guys knew where they did their shift change meeting and, and blew them up and killed probably 20 or 30 people. Never mind the civilians that were hanging around. So I, th I was a little curious with this crew that I was with and we went down there to look at it. And, and in fairness, the police were still kind of freaked out. So they saw a bunch of people they didn't know walking around looking at stuff and they arrested us. They threw me in jail. And, you know, I was working for the U.S. government at the time, but I might not have looked like an army guy, put it that way. And I spent, I think, eight to 12 hours in, in jail. And on a regular schedule of about every two hours or so, they would bring me into some room and interrogate me. And the, basically, I've been interrogated many times in practice. The worst times were in the Ranger Regiment where they had kind of a very loose, not very well-trained group of people torturing you in the sense of, we're going to show you what it's like to be a captive and how to do these things. So that played really well in this situation, plus 
I had really good training about how to, you know, avoid certain questions and how to what they call stay in your circle and not volunteer a bunch of information. So I used it. I was kind of, it was kind of fun for me in the sense of I got to screw with these guys and they didn't know it. And I knew they wouldn't, they couldn't keep me in jail. The The government did come and get me at some point. And I was pretty happy with my performance on, on the, the side of that. Now I did have a coworker that was captured with me. And on the flip side, he was a special forces guy probably didn't have the same kind of upbringing and he was very distraught when he came out of there i don't know what he said to him i don't i never really asked him but our experience were clearly different and i think that's attributed to what i went through as a ranger and somewhat in the unit and later on i became the head interrogator for the army unit that was stationed in baghdad and i probably we say interviewed you know three to four hundred people bad guys and it worked really well so all those things and and all these things transcend business and everything else when i'm discussing a contract with somebody i don't necessarily want to give up all kinds of information about what i might have as a solution and so forth so well and i kind of want to ask about this because you know you look at like jason Bourne, fictional character but Based on, you know, if you watch the last movie, they talk about him coming out of the unit that's a real unit that you were in, right? And, you know, there's a lot of movies out there that like to portray military guys as, you know, the knuckle draggers, the meatheads, the the tough guys, but not necessarily the smartest guys, right? And and yet, you know, the world you came from, there is so much... I mean, they are teaching you those Jason Bourne skills. They are, you know, teaching you to go places and and not be with a dozen guys with you you know singleton operations doing stuff yourself like this is not your average army movie kind of stuff right right how do you feel like that kind of self-conditioning that you were talking about in these other ways how do you feel like that applied from training to you know maybe being in a country that you weren't necessarily supposed to be in or that you weren't you know where it's a dicey situation whether you're supposed to be there or not but right well, I mean, the the ability to, and, and this kind of flows into the think on your feet part, the conditioning is critical. And, and when we talked about, I talked about the water thing, and we talked about basically road marching. Road marching is a skill that obviously you can get from point A to point B, but there's a lot more to it. You have to be able to operate on an individual level in a collective environment. So if my feet get blistered up and I can't walk, I mean, I'm freaking useless. I'm a casualty at that point, regardless of how it occurred. So I have to make sure I don't hurt myself, whether it's, you know, and I watched a guy accidentally stab himself in the thigh with his big Kua knife, screwing around with his knife. And, you know, he's gone. So now, you know, we got to deal. And this was in a, a work situation where it wasn't just training somewhere. So now you got one less guy and people like movies and stuff. And there's a great story about Matt Damon is the guy that plays Jason Bourne, I think. Right. So they were supposed to do a movie. They did a movie called The Green Zone and they were supposed to do it in in Iraq. And we were on the hook as the security for the company I was running in Iraq. And we got the insurance and we got all the stuff and we had five or six meetings with staff people and the insurance company wouldn't allow it. Right. But we always attributed it to that that Matt Damon was chicken. So he was scared. I don't think that was necessarily the case. 
but it was a good line. And the fact was they made the green zone in about the green zone in Iraq. They made it in, I think they did it in Morocco or somewhere. Same place they filmed part of Black Hawk Down. But the fact is that Hollywood has a different conception and they and they can say whatever they want and they can make everything look smooth and so forth. But through all these trials that I'm talking about, it's how you... And and you hear this in Rambo and so forth. He was trained to ignore pain. No, he wasn't really trained to ignore pain. What he was trained to do was do all these things. And to get through it, he had to ignore the pain or the trials. But if he got to a point where he overdid it, so he has to know that line about how far he can go. And if your feet start to blister when you're walking and you don't know how to figure that out and fix it, you're going to fail. And that happens in selection all the time. People that are in fantastic shape don't know how to take care of their feet, and they can't pass the course. It's not because they're not physically fit. Some of them could run marathons around me, but I knew how to get through that because of what I was doing, and I knew how to do certain things. And so when they talk about a trained operator like Jason Bourne, they're really just talking about guys that have gone through these things, and whether it's a skill like shooting, close range, long distance, pistols, rifles, other munitions, or being able to physically do something well, whether it's climbing or so forth. You have to be, to be the best guys, you really have to be cross-trained in a lot of different things. And you may not be the best climber, but you're good at everything in certain areas. Well, and this is, I want to talk more about this later, but this is something that I admire so much about hanging out with you guys is like, to me, the whole idea of being an operator is interesting because people assume at least, okay, I used to assume that you guys were the best at every single one of those skills. And yet hanging, you know, as we've worked on child rescue together and these different things over the years and spent time, you really shown me how it's more like, it's the complete package. It's like really good at a whole bunch of them, maybe the best at, you know, pistol shooting when you've got to get a hostage out of a house where long guns are not going to be as effective you know there's maybe some things where you guys are literally top in the world right but there's all these other skills that you're just above average but you're above average at so many different skills that you can kind of adapt to any situation and that was a that was an interesting idea to me and i've thought about it a lot in business ever since and you've obviously owned companies and been an investor and done stuff overseas in the business world and i think about the school system says you need to be a specialist, you know, oh, you're going to make money if you become a specialist. Yet, I look at some of the most effective entrepreneurs that I look up to, and they're more like you guys in the way that they know they're good at accounting. They're not the best accountant, but they're they're good at the numbers. They're good at the people stuff. They're good at the logistics. Like, they're good at enough of the things that that whole package makes them an excellent op- entrepreneur. And maybe they are a genius for product or they are a genius for being able to land giant contracts or something, but then they're good enough at all these other skills that the whole package really makes them more adaptable and, and succeed over people who are specialists just at one thing. Do you you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you another avenue that matters and, and school's great. And I think there's a lot of schools that do good jobs in different areas and some are better at others and so forth. But what, The common theme of all of this, and actually, and I haven't said this before, but from the the basic training through airborne school, the Ranger Battalion, and and at the pinnacle at the unit, integrity was a big part of that. So in business later on, you know, it matters that you're honest with people and that you can fairly treat your people that work with you, or you can address things that people do 
above you and you can, you know, either fix them because a lot of times people that I work for didn't know what the hell they were doing. So I had to fix things on that level. And then I had to make sure it didn't impact the people below me. And it's important to have that integrity in all kinds of work. So in fairness, I was trying to be the best guy I was to be able to perform on a team that I thought were, in some cases, in certain areas, they were outperforming me. But I was always trying to do better in all those areas. I wasn't the best pistol shooter in the world. I think I'm a well above average pistol shooter. And and I know that, but I was shooting with people that were the best in the world in some cases. And I was always just trying to get a little bit better and not necessarily beat them all the time, but be, you know, I had limited skills in certain areas and I could be honest about that. But when it comes to interacting with people, integrity is so important. It's one thing that you can't compromise on. Like I can compromise on the fact that maybe I don't want to walk 10 miles today. I want to walk eight or five or whatever. But when you're talking about interacting with people, honestly, there's no substitute for that. And I've seen people fail in that in the Ranger Regiment over the years in some real critical things where people were dead and so forth. And they and they made up stories about what happened. And I'm talking about the Tillman incident. So that's a big thing in the news and people writing false reports. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but those things are unacceptable. And I think that translates into everything you do in business. If people think you're honest and the people and and obviously I think you're honest or or I wouldn't have anything to do with you. But that's what's helping me right now. You know, I'm doing these deals with PPE with people on the East Coast that I've worked with, Justin being one of them, and then some other people, uh, Colonel Allen that I've worked with and so forth. And everybody involved trusts each other. We know everybody is above board. Nobody's going to do anything weird if if we make a certain amount of money, it's all going to be above. And I see businesses operate sometimes and they don't have that that ethic. And I'll give you an example of that too. I ran a company in Iraq called Falcon Security. One of the head guys that was involved in above me was getting information from a guy about another company. And there's nothing wrong with corporate espionage. I'm not, I don't think that that's a bad thing unless depending on how you're getting it, you know, if you're coercing people to get information, that's a bad thing. If they're volunteering it, that's up to them. And this guy had been feeding us a bunch of information on contracts. This guy, Brian Bell said, you know, we should hire this guy. Why would we hire this guy? This guy's giving us info about the company he works for. I'd never hire him. I said, I'll listen to all his info. I mean, we'll take whatever we can get from him, but I'd never hire this guy. He's very bad. So I want to, Maybe this is a good part to close part one is I don't think there'd be anybody who would endorse dishonesty. There's nobody who's going to say that integrity doesn't matter, right? But yet I think about your world and for you guys, like it is on a different level. Like, do you think it has something to do with like literally trusting your life to each other? Or like, I, I do think like I look at you and Peter and some of the guys we do stuff with that, that came out of your unit, right? And <laughs> There's like this, like, when you say it, you mean it the first time kind of a thing that is maybe to a different level than I see sometimes in the civilian world. Can you, I mean, everybody thinks that yeah. integrity is important, but I know what you're saying about it's to another level in that for you guys. Can you, I don't really know how to describe it. Any ideas? Well, I think it is. it does matter. The fact is it does matter when you have people's lives in your hands. And I've been in situations where if I made mistakes absolutely people would die. So, but I, I didn't really, I wasn't dwelling on that fact at the time, nor afterwards. I wasn't dwelling on any of that. 
what I was talking about or what I was trying to do was be successful in accomplishing a mission or something. But most people never have to, you know, in their accounting job or whatever, and not to, and I'm not trying to belittle somebody's job, but even corporate America, you know, some of these people never have to do it. And if they had to deal with something where, you know, there was uh, not even just high risk involved, they, they couldn't operate. But I think being able to operate in, in the sense of an environment where a lot of times people's lives are in your hands, whether it's uh, live fire operations, airborne operations, other explosive things that we were doing with close proximity to people and very technical stuff. Yeah. And if mistakes are made, somebody can get injured severely or killed. But I think that that's what happens. So people like me and Peter and other folks like that, it's kind of a daily ritual to make sure all the stuff is correct. And it may look like we're not that concerned or we're not that interested, but it's very important. And the integrity is there. And it's unacceptable, even in a small sense, that somebody's life may not be involved to not do it right. So your estimation on that is correct. Well, maybe to close this off, and you know, you don't have to name names or anybody, but is there anybody that you look up to in the unit that you feel like really set the example for that for you or somebody you just have ultimate respect for that comes to mind of like they yeah. really set that example? Well, the guy that I think there's two people in my army career that did more for me than anybody else in the sense I think of molding me. And the biggest one of those is a guy named Chuck Briscoe. Chuck Briscoe is the a retired colonel. I worked for him in a staff unit prior to going to the unit, but it was attached. It was part of the unit's staff. So it was actually oversight on the unit, to be honest with you. But Chuck Briscoe is currently the historian for USASOC, the Army, U.S. Army Special Operations Command. And he's Dr. Briscoe. Now he's his has a PhD in, I think, Latin American studies for some reason. But anyway, he was the guy that probably taught me more about operating in a complicated environment than anybody. And he expected, whether it was in a written form or a, a class or a verbal exchange, he always expected the top, the best product. If I was given a speech or doing a briefing, he wanted the, the best product and he got it because if he didn't, you were doing it over or redoing it. And integrity, he was, you know, there's nobody better than this guy. And he was the deputy commander of the unit also, but he failed selection four times, most likely due to an injury he had in Vietnam. He's a decorated guy from Vietnam and had a pretty severe foot injury, but he's a marathon runner and all that. But again, that's not necessarily going to get you through the grueling hikes through the forest and he wasn't successful, but it didn't deter him. He was very successful in everything else. And it's hard to quantify everything in a short blurb that this guy did for me. But there's no question in my mind that he is probably the best manager of army staff that I've ever seen. And just manager in general, he had a great way to deal with everybody. He, he knew how to get the best out of everybody. And, and his writing and his work was second to none. I mean, the guy is phenomenal. Is there, is there a story or an example of that that comes to mind? Oh, I got a great example of that. I was, a uh, I was kind of an undercover operator there. I would go out and look at tests that were being conducted for the army or the special mission units, basically. They didn't know who I was, though. They would think that I worked for a company because I had long hair and I wasn't in uniform. And I didn't have to disclose that to them. 
So I went up to Aberdeen Proving Grounds to observe a test that was going on for the Rangers' vehicles, the new vehicles, the RSOVs. They were testing them. I wrote the test parameter for that test. Our unit funded that test, and we had hired, we, we kind of appointed two guys from 1st Ranger Battalion, a lieutenant and a staff sergeant, to do the test. Well, when I went up to observe, the testing people at Aberdeen were pissed off because they had some civilian showing up from some company that was going to be looking over their shoulder. So they weren't too happy about that. So they, I had to wait really long time to get cleared to come in on a, I, you know, I showed up at nine o'clock like I was supposed to, and I didn't get in, I didn't get in the place to like 11. They kind of screwed me around. They broke two of the vehicles in testing outside of the parameters. So I shut the test down and they laughed at me and said, you know, I don't have any authority. So when I left, I called Chuck Briscoe up and I said, Hey, here's what's going on in a short story of what I just, just said. He said, okay. He goes, we'll go in there at nine o'clock tomorrow and let me know immediately. If you have any issues, just call me. I showed up at nine o'clock. It was like an entourage of people met me and they were like, Oh, sir, we're really sorry. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay. So we went in and we started talking about everything. And I kind of looked at him and I said, you know, you, you got to be careful when you start talking about something to somebody if you don't know who you're talking to. And they were looking at me like, what? And I go, well, I'll give you some info. I wrote the test plan that you guys are operating on. So I know that you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Said, so secondly, I'm a former staff sergeant in 2nd Ranger Battalion. So I know all the capabilities of these vehicles and what they're supposed to do. And you can't lie to me about stuff. It's you're lying to me about stuff that I know in, intimately about. And I chastised the staff sergeant and the lieutenant for going along with it. I said, you two guys are supposed to be our honest agents. You're not supposed to let these test people push you around. I said, your job. And they were like, oh, we didn't think we could question anything. And so I kind of revamped the whole system. And when I got back at the end of the day, I called Chuck up and he said, he goes, yeah, I just called the base commander, General, you know, half track, whoever he was, and said, you know, we paid $1.2 million for this. Why are you? Why are you screwing with my representative and treating him like crap? And they fixed it. And they actually got the test done correctly. And everything went smooth from that point on. But to have that kind of backup from the guy and not to say, hey, you're up there, you figure it out, you know, kind of. And that's one example of him supporting me. It's interesting the kind of loyalty leadership can get, right? When a leader helps us with our job, even when they don't have to, man, doesn't it make you want to just do anything for that guy? Yeah. In certain circumstances, sure. you know, another great example is I had a guy working for me in Iraq that was a former Lebanese officer and I was in charge of 1500 people running this security thing. And he was my logistics guy. So my supply people and all and he came in one day and said, we need to get gloves for the guards. When winter was coming on, they wanted gloves for everybody. So he lays out like this five different gloves on the table. And he's like, which one do you want? And I'm looking at him. I'm like, why, why am I paying you to figure out what we're doing? I go, listen, what I think is you want me to pick this glove out. So if it's a piece of garbage and it doesn't work or it's junk, then he could turn around and go, I don't know. The boss picked it. I said, so what you're going to do is you're going to figure out which one you want. I'll fund it. And if it's garbage, I'm going to fire you. And he was like, oh, my God, he was floored. But honestly, that's the tactic of the third world and the tribal environment. You're seeing a little of that right now in Seattle. But that's the tribal environment. 
it's uh the boss has all the authority and all the responsibility and takes all all the blame well you know i think this is a good part to wrap up for part one but what you're bringing up is something i want to bring up in part two is how much respect i have for the way you guys were organized as far as you know trusting the boots on the ground and letting the people closest to the problem think on their feet and solve problems instead of you know kind of the joke about you know if we wanted you to have a brain we would have issued you one at basic training you know like <laughs> everything you know right, right wait around for the colonel to think for you kind of you know cliches mm -hmm. or something right absolutely okay well everybody please tune back in for our next interview here with tom we're going to be uh talking about thinking on your feet <laughs>